You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Over the last few months, we've been spotlighting youth voices from regions vulnerable to climate change in a mini-series called Loss, Damage and Denial, produced in partnership with the Loss and Damage Youth Coalition. Today, in our final episode of this mini-series, we're taking you to the Caribbean, where a group of small island developing states face unique challenges, with warming sea temperatures and more severe natural disasters. We'll also be revisiting the Pacific and asking how we can shift the narrative that small island developing states are doomed to be the first victims of the climate crisis. I'm Jacob Gamble, broadcasting from Wurundjeri country in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. Today on Earth Matters, loss, damage and denial, the triumphs and challenges facing small island developing states. For me, it kind of started with some of the experiences I had in like secondary school, high school, you know. Um, I was very into like debating, I enjoyed that. Tristan Ward is a social and behaviour change officer at UNICEF. His home country in Barbados sits in between the land masses of North and South America. And I think kind of some of the topics that we engage with during that time, you know, really opened my eyes to some of the more serious issues occurring around us. Um, And so that was more the awareness kind of phase, you know, but I think kind of if I had to pinpoint any one moment in time where it was like, you know, I really have to step up a bit more and start to do a bit more. It's probably when I was in university, um, I had a experience in class experience, really. Um, it was in 2017. And for for some of some of us and for some people listening, you know, this was the year that there was hurricanes such as uh, Maria and Irma. And those were, you know, very strong hurricanes, Category 5 hurricanes. And I had class the day that um, one of them actually had hit some of the islands, um, Dominica in particular. And I remember being in class with some of my regional classmates, you know, and seeing the impact that it had on them, you know, and that really kind of hit home because, you know, tomorrow or next hurricane season or later in this one, you know, it could be it could be me and and my people and so on. So as you'll probably come to realize that I do, I do see the, the other islands as kind of brothers and sisters and we have a very strong kind of sense of culture, shared culture and community. So it really did have a profound impact, impact on me. And I think that's where it all started. For listeners who might not be familiar with um, the region and, and with Barbados, um, tell me a bit about what your community looks like and, and also what the local environment is there. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, um, Barbados is classified, you know, as a small island developing state. Um, geographically, it's placed in the Caribbean um, with a population, very small population of just under 300,000 people. Um, it's almost always sunny and beautiful in Barbados, I like to say. And um, the island is particularly flat, um, even relative to a lot of the Caribbean neighbours. You know, they have a lot of mountains and hills and so on. The island's actually quite flat, so it's a very kind of distinct feature about us. Sadly, because of climate change, the sea level's risen, sand's gone and the rocks have come up. 
This has meant that the coral has sadly broken and coming in onto the beach, which has meant small fishes have nowhere to stay, which leads to big fishes not having no food and the, uh, the fishermen having no fish to catch, which has affected the, the Bayesian community. Could you tell us a little bit about what are some of the losses and damages that you've seen currently and you expect to see in the future uh, in Barbados? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'll probably kind of categorize by, by climate impact and, and what the kind of cascading effect has been. Um, so you'll see me sing a lot of few. But in particular, um, I want to start with uh, drought. Um, you know, the current situation really is that as we speak right now, we're in a moment of drought, like an official moment of drought since about the beginning of April. I do not uh I do not lie to you when I say that the rain has probably fallen for more than five minutes, like a handful of times since the beginning of, of April. So that's just to give you a sense of the, the situation. It's been a real lack of, of rain. And so, you know, we've had some kind of prohibitive kind of measures around water usage and so on. And um I think that's that's really kind of a, a a change for Barbados. We've always been a particularly water scarce country, make no mistake. But um, it's really been kind of uh, amplified by by drought situation and the kind of infrequent rainfall patterns, and you see the impact that it's now really having on farmers, um, you know, and their ability to produce crops in this time. Um, and, you know, just trying to, see, you know, you read the news each day and you see some of the challenges that they have, knowing that this is really a new space for them. This is something that in large part, you know, many are unfamiliar with or don't know how best to respond to. And I mean, another impact we talk about with drought is, is really um, this issue of fires, uh, grass and like bushfires. And actually this year, I would say is the first time it really kind of came into like the public focus that kind of impact we had like chief fire officers you know giving the numbers and saying that look these numbers are actually going up and you know it's a concern we have to be careful there are actually instances where the grass fires are leading to house fires and you know a lot of times we hear about these things on tv in much bigger places like the u.s maybe even australia for example but Barbados doesn't have that kind of space to play with, you know, doesn't have that kind of geographical size and, and land mass to play with. So I, I think this issue is particularly concerning and kind of changes the dynamic now when we really have to see how best we can respond. But um, that's that's just the first impact that I like to talk about. Um, there's been another peculiar one in terms of sargasm seaweed. Um, this one's interesting. The connection to climate really is that um, ocean temperatures and kind of like, you know, runoff from different agricultural plants and so on is causing a bloom in the sea in terms of sargasm seaweed and the direction in which it's heading as well, because it hasn't always really been in the Caribbean region. But since about 2015 or so, we've seen it come and take up many of the coastlines across the Caribbean, Central and South America even, you know, um, and it's having a real impact. I mean, you talk about <clears throat> you talk about the rotting scent that you get when when it decomposes on the sand. For example, I mentioned there are a lot of coastal communities, so they have to deal with that. It isn't particularly good for your health. Um, there's also the issue of tourism and that impact. A lot of hotel and kind of tourist related properties on the coastlines, 
And I mean, it's been relatively seasonal. And I'd say that we have done a, or we are doing a better job of monitoring, you know, with early warning systems. So maybe being able to plan better. But in terms of actually reading the issue, like the volume of sargasm seaweed we have is, is way more than any amount of equipment that we currently have at our disposal can handle. So it really is still a challenge that needs, needs to be dealt with. I've lived here all my life. Uh, my family, you know, we've, my sister and I, we grew up here. The change is kind of drastic. Um, first of all, the water never used to be this far up. So now the houses that are built near to the beach, when you have high tide, it goes into their houses. So far we've talked drought, sargasm, seaweed, and I just want to touch now on hurricanes. I think that um, hurricanes is, is probably the most known kind of climate impact we talk about when you talk about the Caribbean, um, because we're no stranger really to hurricanes um, for, for, for years now. Um, but one of the differences you might see is in the strength of some of those hurricanes. So, you know, we're seeing maybe more like category five hurricanes. We're seeing a greater number of hurricanes in one particular hurricane season, for example. And we are even seeing in some instances hurricane form, hurricanes forming at the, the earlier end of the hurricane season, as opposed to later down when we typically see them, maybe August, September, you know, that kind of time. And, um, I think in the instance of Barbados, it's really, really interesting, I think, um, because we've kind of have had a very interesting positioning in the in the in the region where in many instances we haven't been hit by hurricanes. We might get it, you know, when it's um kind of no farming and hasn't quite gone into a hurricane just as yet or gotten that classification just as yet. But in recent times and 2021 was a real example, we got hit by hurricane category one as early as June. Um, literally the first month of the hurricane season hadn't ended yet and we were in trouble, um, so to speak. And just to kind of position it for you, that was the first hurricane that Barbados had in 66 years. 1955 was the last time. So it really, really is a different kind of change of, of pace for us. Maybe in some instances, we didn't even think that we had to worry too much about hurricanes but now it's a different situation and we also are always aware of the impact that hurricanes have had on some of our neighbors like i said 2017 with countries like dominica and antigua and barbuda for example those impacts you know those those stay with us so i i think it's important to talk about that there there's impact on lives communities and gdp and you know, we we have to spend the next set of years uh, recovering and never really kind of finding our footing or, or having the opportunity to properly grow and develop maybe in the way that we would like. The climate crisis is going to impact everyone, uh, but there are certain groups that are going to be impacted a little bit more or a lot more. And you touched on farmers before, but I'm wondering which other groups do you think will be most impacted by climate change? Yeah, great, great question, honestly, because um, that's the reality. Um, the, the climate impacts aren't going to be evenly distributed across uh, any given society, really. And some persons, some groups are going to feel it in a different way and perhaps more, um, more than others as well. And for me, I think probably more than any other group in society, climate change will have its biggest impact on children and youth. Um, I think it's interesting as well because, um, you know, 
ultimately as time passes we're the young people the children right now they're going to be the ones spending more time with these impacts so ultimately you, you have to deal with that a bit more and then i think you couple that with the fact then that you have young people once again within the society there isn't that even kind of distribution but also kind of geographically as well there isn't an even distribution in terms of climate impact so then you have young people or children and, and youth in in a country but then you're also in a particularly vulnerable country or region to climate change so it's almost like it's it doubles the the concern or, or the worry and so i think that's the situation for the caribbean you know we're in a particularly vulnerable region and then within the societal context youth uh, children and youth are you know particularly vulnerable so for me, um, you know, it's it's uh, every time I have the opportunity, it's still something I like to touch on. You know, there are particular areas that are, are relevant for children, such as, you know, like health and education, um, water, obviously. And I think we need to pay attention to these kind of sectoral impacts and how children are, are, are coping even in, in these moments as well. But um, yeah, if, if I had to say there was any one group, it would definitely be children and youth. You're listening to Earth Matters. Today, we're discussing the vulnerabilities of small island developing states to the climate crisis and how we can shift the narrative from despair to action. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust. What actions would you like to see from global governments, particularly those from um, the global north, as some people describe it, in taking uh, climate action, particularly around climate finance? Yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, um... You know, such is kind of the the imbalance of the whole climate change situation. Um, but I do think there there's several opportunities really to strengthen. Um, there's a lot more that could be done. Um, namely, you know, we talk about you know the COP event that occurred yearly, and you know at the last one, probably the most advanced we've gotten around you know um, loss and damage and for a fund and a facility. So I think that's a, that's honestly, given the kind of attention that COP gets and, you know, knowing that that was one of the big things coming out of the last one, I think it would be really great to see, you know, some tangible movement and maybe um, official establishment of some of these things, whether it's a fund facility or both. Um, I think that would be a good place to to start. But I also want to to take this moment to, to, to mention, um, the Bridgetown initiative or the Bridgetown agenda, as some people are calling it, because I think it has great relevance here. And it just so happens that, you know, it's named after the capital of Barbados. And it was, you know, um, started by my prime minister, uh, Mia, Mia Motley. But it has great relevance here because really and truly it's, it's an idea, a real advocacy effort to to propose a new way of mobilizing international finance for particularly kind of crisis affected uh, lower income countries such as Barbados and others. Um, 
I think it really provides the opportunity to unlock some more financial support for countries who are on the front lines of climate change. And some of the key elements that the initiative kind of advocates for would be like, um, you know, greater support for multilateral banks, debt relief for, for climate impacts, and reconstruction grants to repay for losses and damages caused by climate-related disasters. And I, I found that, you know, I don't want to say surprisingly because, you know, small island states, you know, true, you know, groupings like AOSIS and so have always have had a, a pretty large impact on this whole climate discussion. But it feels like once again, we're seeing from a different angle, perhaps this time, you know, this this conversation around the Bridgetown initiative and agenda kind of entering into the global global discussion and having having some movement. So I think if richer countries, you know, their governments um could take up some of these things a bit more and, and run with them really and truly, um, that would be great to see. Um, I think more broadly, um, I think more broadly, we just need to also just put people more at the center of climate action. I think there's a lot of discussion on raising, you know, adaptive capacity of sectors and and so on. But I think there's there needs to be the focus on raising the adaptive capacity of the different groups of people in society as well. Because as we've talked about, you know, even in a few moments you've mentioned Australia, the impacts are already here and we need to see how best we can protect persons. So I think I'd, I'd kind of leave it at those three things. The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. 25 trillion of that, 9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that 25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. The Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, has been a firm advocate for more climate finance for small island developing states. On the other side of the world in the Pacific, it's a very similar story of vulnerability to sea level rise and an absence of strong action from the global north. My name is Neta Mayava and I'm of full Samoan descent, so I have Polynesian heritage from the Pacific. Uh, both my parents were born in Samoa, and I, whereas I was born in New Zealand, so I have that connection through my parents and my culture and heritage. Neta Mayava is a Samoan Pacific climate warrior fighting to preserve her homeland. And I'm a part of the Pacific Climate Warriors, as you mentioned, and that's under 350 or 350, and that's a youth-led grassroots network working with communities to fight uh, climate change from the Pacific Islands and relative, um, related diasporas. Yeah, such important work uh, that you're doing. Was there any kind of big personal moment that got you into climate advocacy and set you on this path? Yeah, so growing up, I kind of like always had a little personality trait for like caring for the environment. I thought it was a bit quirky for that. Um, <laughs> but then it wasn't until 2019 when the school strike for climate um, rally happened in New Zealand. 
um, that's when it kind of really sparked my passion for advocating for climate change from a Pacific perspective. And that's mostly from in a little group called 4TK, which stands for For the Culture. So it's a small group from New Zealand, um, mainly South Auckland. And it was a bunch of school kids who kind of Pacifica school kids. And they rallied like all of the Pacific communities to get involved with the school strike um, just to make sure that we were heard and were a part of the conversation. And yeah, so they really inspired me because, you know, they're school kids, they were young. I was I was a bit older um, at that time, a bit older than them. But they really inspired me to really push forward and find something, you know, where I am to be a part of the conversation as well. Mm. And how have you found it so far? I think it's been an amazing experience. Um, I've definitely, from talking to other climate activists, I've had a different experience because I've been joined with my community. Mm. Um, but I think that's only made my experience better and a lot safer and um, really welcoming for me too, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear it. And when we talk about the Pacific, it's so often referred to in the media as on the front lines of climate change um, because obviously it's it's such a vulnerable region. I mean, how does this make you feel um, when you see sort of those headlines? And are there any other narratives of the Pacific around climate change that you feel like aren't getting that attention? Yeah, so I think um, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, it is the truth that we are um, the communities that are at the front lines of this, of the effects of climate change. But I think there's one, like, strong motto that the Pacific Climate Warriors have always been, like, trying to push forward. So we have this saying called, we are not drowning, we are fighting. And that's just our way of saying that um, even though we're at the front, like, we're warriors, That's it's in our names, and we're, we're here to fight, and we're, you know, um, because I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about the Pacific in such a dystopian way, like, in a way that, you know, it, it seems like there's no hope for us, but we definitely, you know, hope is a, a strong point in our organisation, and we definitely want to push that story that we that we are not drowning and we are fighting. Mm, it's such a great message. Mm. And in this fight for climate justice, what do you see as some of the major challenges? I think um, like climate justice is it intersects with a lot of other different issues. And I think one of the biggest, like um, even just being in, you know, so-called Australia or living or benefiting off of this stolen land, one of the biggest challenges is that First Nations justice is climate justice. Mm. And so um, we intersect a lot of with First Nations justice and Indigenous justice. So it, they kind of come hand in hand. So I think that's like a big challenge that already exists. And then to have the impacts of climate change on top of that, like already makes the issue like a whole lot bigger as well. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, from your uh, family and your heritage perspective in Samoa, what do you see as some of the challenges facing that uh, island nation? I think one of the biggest one is the sea level rising. So there's a lot of villages that are out on the coast and then as the sea level rises, they're slowly coming inwards and then people have to like relocate where they've been living. Um, they just have to move inwards a lot. Um, there's a lot of scientific facts in the way climate change has been affecting Samoa. Uh, fortunately for the family that I do know, 
that in Samoa they've been okay because they don't live out too close to the coast. Mm. But I think it's all connected anyway. So any issues that they're facing with businesses or agriculture, like it's all, it's all together and it will affect them eventually or if not they're already being affected yeah mm-hmm. and being in australia as well we're considered sort of one of the the more influential nations on this we have the highest pollution per capita in the world and the albanese government has made many commitments to climate action but simultaneously they're also funding fossil fuels so mm-hmm. we're in this weird position where we're fighting climate change but we're also contributing to it i mean in your eyes does australia have a bigger role to play in safeguarding the future for our pacific neighbors i definitely think so i i um, definitely think there's something there that needs to be talked about um and like you mentioned, like there's been a lot of conversation around climate finance and loss and damage funds. And I think it's more about making sure that it doesn't stay a conversation and it's there's action put towards that too. Um, and it's not just all talk and greenwashing that's going on. Um, mm. But um, yeah, sorry. There were, you said quite a lot there. I wasn't sure if there were other points that I have to draw out from. <laughs> no, no, that's that's all good. Mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, loss and damage and, and mm. climate finance in general, if you have any. Um, yeah, so the Establishment for Loss and Damage uh, Fund at COP27 was a win for the Pacific. Um, but again, like COP27 and COP26, or all the COPs that we've had, is a big discussion and what what should come out of that is action. So there's still a lot of uh, work that needs to be done until climate finances reach the communities that need it the most. A hundred percent. And you were talking a bit before as well about how climate justice and First Nations justice go hand in hand. What actions would you like to see as well to to preserve Indigenous communities, culture and and land? Yes, a lot of solidarity work needs to be done. And also, I think a lot of the climate justice solutions are Indigenous solutions. If you go back to history and the way that uh, many communities were living before, they were all sustainable, or mostly were all sustainable. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from there and a lot that our government should be looking into to really solve this climate issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It can be a very grim topic to talk about uh, climate change, as you would know. What climate positive future would you envision? Or if you had a message of hope to give, what would it be? Yeah, I think um, there's there's plenty of hope. Like, I think it all comes in people power. You know, it's not something the individual can do. It's a lot of community work. It's a lot of rallying together. And, you know, if everyone can put in, I don't see why there can't be a positive outcome at the end. Um, But, yeah, it's a lot of working together and putting in the work together. It shouldn't be on one person. And you're never alone in this movement, especially nowadays. Like the movement's really coming along together well. So I think, yeah, there's no. I I don't see no reason why we can't push forward and fight for this. Thank you so much to all of our guests for their generous time on this episode. And thank you also to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. 
I'm Jacob Gamble. We'll be back at the same time next week.